0: Uh, This morning, we're going to be studying in the book of Judges, chapters uh, 6 through 8. We're going to be doing a character study on the life of Gideon uh, and and checking him out. So uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to Judges chapter 6 verse 1, and we're going to start there. The account of Gideon's life here is found in these three, ver- these three chapters. Judges, chapter 6 through chapter 8 shows us who, who Gideon is. The book of Judges is titled for uh, after the Hebrew word Shafat, which can mean um, to judge in the traditional sense that we think of the word judge, that, that uh, we make a decision or make a distinction that there's someone who presides over, that kind of a judge, uh, a judgment being passed. But it also can mean uh, to vindicate Or to deliver. This can also be what the word uh, judge means. And so uh, we first find the word judge in the book of Judges in chapter 2 uh, and in uh, verse 16, which is, is a section in chapter 2, which is like a synopsis of the entire book of Judges. The whole book of Judges is encapsulated for us in, in uh, verses 13 through 18 of chapter 2. And, and here we find in the middle of this synopsis of the entire book, recount, showing for us what we're about to read over and over again throughout the book of Judges, um, we find... Uh, in verse 16, it says this. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And so what God is showing us here as we look at this book of Judges is that he, he's showing us that his people have abandoned him and God in his grace and in his mercy would raise up a judge, would raise up a deliverer who would deliver his people from their bondage from their slavery. The book of Judges is divided into seven cycles. As you read through the book of Judges, there are seven cycles, something that happens over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges, seven different times. Uh, and here's how the cycle essentially goes: The first thing that happens is, is God's people sin. God's people sin. They they reject God, they abandon God, they turn from God to idolatry. They would raise up an idol, they would, instead of worshiping him, they would worship something else. The, the the people of God sin. The second thing that would happen, not only did God's people sin, but God's judgment then comes. Rightly so, if we abandon God, if we leave Him behind, if we pursue our own things, if we raise up another idol, something else to worship, God's judgment then comes upon the people. The, this judgment was commonly found, and throughout the book of Judges was the oppression of the nations who were the enemies of God, Uh, they they would oppress God's people. They would be given access to the people of God. They would be given opportunity to oppress them, to enslave them, and to capture them. And so God's people sin. The second thing, God's judgment comes. The third thing, God's people cry out. They cry out for a deliverer. They they cry out to God. The pain of the discipline, the discomfort of of the, the sin that is caused in their life causes them to then finally cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, the the pain of discipline drives them back to Him. The the fourth thing that happens is that we see that God's Deliverer rises. So so the people sin, judgment comes, the people cry out, and God graciously and mercifully raises up a Deliverer. He sends someone to free them, to be their judge, to vindicate them, to defeat their enemies, to set them free from the enslavement and the captivity that they've been in. And then finally, the people repent. God's people repent. They destroy their idols, they return to their God, and they live in peace, only to start over again. And we see this cycle happen. Over and over again, seven different times throughout the book of Judges. It, it actually shows us a picture of who we are, of our tendency and our propensity towards sin. That, that even though God would set me free, even though He would be so gracious as to see me in my sin and He would give me a way out and I would return to Him, that, that then I find myself going back to the very sin that, that I once destroyed. And it's something that we need to grow through. It's something that we need to see as, as a tendency in our lives and, and to choose, instead of going back into sin, to go back to our God. Instead of allowing sin to control us, we, we allow the Holy Spirit of God to control us. And, and so as we study through the, this life of Gideon, we're going to see this, this cycle clearly portrayed through Gideon and through the people. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, we see the beginning of the fourth cycle in the book of Judges. Judges 6, 1, this is where we find the account of... Uh, of Gideon. So let's read Judges 6, 1 and 2 together. It says this, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because, uh, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Here we see that Israel, God's people, have rejected him. Right. It starts off, the opening statement in chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. A side note on this, something just to think about, is that evil is always determined by God. It's not a relative term, it's something that is determined by who He is. He dictates what good and bad are, and evil is always in the sight of the Lord. Israel has rejected God and they've chosen open rebellion and evil <laughs> against him. And in, excuse me, in doing so, uh, the, what they've done is, is essentially, it's the same thing that, we, that happens to us. They've been enticed into believing a lie. They, they've been enticed into thinking that their way is somehow better than God's way. That, that I need this thing instead of God. That I need to pursue my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own agenda instead of the thing of God. They they had believed that God's way was too restrictive. God's way is too difficult. It's too hard to go the way of God. God, you just need to be more open-minded. You need to just kind of get with the times and make sure that you know how life is in our season, in our place, in our culture, in our time. God, your way is too restrictive. It's too too narrow. It's not broad enough. It's not open enough. It's not open-minded enough. And so this abandonment of God in pursuit of themselves is what we see happening in the people. They've abandoned what God says and they've pursued what seems best to them. Doesn't that sound like a commentary on our world today? It sounds exactly like what we're dealing with today. That that we as a people are constantly abandoning God, making up reasons why it's okay, and then pursuing our sin. Pursuing our selfish desires. Pursuing what seems best to us. And the result of this as we see in verse two, is seven long years of intense oppression and judgment. Intense. I mean, it's it's crazy. The people are living in fear, as we can, as you continue to read. The people are so afraid, we saw kind of a prelude of that, that the people are actually living in the caves in the mountains. They've abandoned their cities. They've retreated to the caves in the mountains. The, it, we're told that the, the people of Midian, who are their oppressors, and the Amalekites who surround Israel, that they're marauding through Israel and having free and open range. They're going from the east, their eastern border, all the way as far as Gaza, which is on the western and southern border. They were able to travel freely throughout the nation of Israel without fear of the people of Israel, without fear of, of being uh, of pushback or anything that Midian would go through. And we're told that they were, they were numerous, as numerous like locusts, which is a, a euphemism to say they were without number. We couldn't even count them. There were so many of them. It was crazy. And what they would do is they would be like a plague upon the land. As they showed up, they would decimate the crops. They would completely take everything. They would take all the livestock There would be nothing left for the people of Israel. No sustenance. No ability. The people were living in fear. They were living in the caves. They had no food. We are even told that they had great poverty as a result of this. And it was all because they had abandoned God. They had chosen their own way. They had rejected God. You see, when God says don't, when he looks at things and he says don't do this, don't touch this, don't think like this, don't be like this, when he says don't, he's saying don't hurt yourself. That's what he's saying. God is not withholding something good from you. That's the, that's the lie from all the way back in, in Genesis. That's the lie that the serpent brought to Eve and said, God's holding something back from you that's good, something that you should have. Somehow God is wrong. Somehow God is bad. Somehow God has taken from you and he's withholding from you, and now you need to think that God's bad. God's wrong. Something's, something's wrong with him. He's not withholding anything good from you. It, m- it makes me think about my oldest daughter. Uh, when she was about uh, 18 months old, Um, we started, as any good man would do, I started feeding her steak. It's discipleship, it's training, right? And I've told my children ever since they could eat meat that they're eating animals. You're not eating a package, you're eating a cow. You're eating a chicken. You're eating a pig. That's what you're eating. And hopefully soon I'm going to take them to go get their hunting license and we'll go kill one and eat that. When she was about 18 months old, um, she was sitting on my lap and I'm feeding her steak. To this day, she begs for the pink meat. She loves it medium. She's awesome. Um, and so I got her on my lap and I'm cutting the, the steak for her and I'm feeding her, right? It's cutting it into small pieces that she can manage and she can, she can handle. And as, I'm, as she's sitting on my lap and I'm cutting the steak, she starts to reach out for the knife that's in my hand. And as any good father, I handed it to her and said, play with it, sweetie. Obviously, of course not. I didn't do that. Because all of you know that what an 18 month old child's going to do with a knife is dangerous for me and for her. It's going to be a bad thing if she gets a hold of that knife. So I hold it away from her and I tell her no. And then I start cutting the, cutting the steak again. Well, she gets angry with me and she thinks I'm evil. That somehow I'm withholding from her this really awesome, crazy, good thing. And so I hold it away from her. She gets mad at me. She starts crying. And then I say no and I feed her another piece of steak. It subsides her because steak is awesome. And We go back through this over and over again, and she gets mad at me, and she's angry with me, and she can't believe that I wouldn't give her the steak knife. Today, she's eight, I can give her a steak knife, and she can cut her meat, no problem. Then, and in that context, what she was having at that time was bad, dangerous, even life-threatening for her. Today, the context of that thing is good. It's beneficial. It's useful. It's helpful. But as a loving and caring and good father, I would not give to her something that she couldn't handle at the time. And there are going to be things that I'm going to take away from her life that are never going to be good. And I will never allow her to do this. I will never give her the freedom to do certain things because it's going to, it's going to co- possibly cost her her very life. And so too it is with us and God. You see, there's a deception into thinking that we know better than Him. That somehow, God, you're, you're holding back from me things that are good. You're holding back from me things that I deserve, things that I need, and you won't give it to me, and that makes you bad, God. That makes you wrong. That makes you somehow evil in my eyes. In James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. When the Bible says don't be deceived, that means there's a deception, right? There's something that can deceive you. There's something that is trying to trick you don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or or shadow due to change. This is who God is. This is who he has said that he is. And this is who we need to trust him to be. You see, giving in to to deception, we start to think that somehow God is not good. Somehow God is not light. Somehow he does change. Somehow he is hiding something. There is a shadow. There is something that's not clear and open for me to see. And I start to judge God and start to think that somehow he is withholding something from me. And so I pursue my sin. I pursue my bondage thinking it's freedom and foolishly tie myself up. Never realizing that in our pursuit of freedom and liberty, To serve our own desires, we end up imprisoned and enslaved. And this is where the people find themselves in Gideon's day. They've pursued their own way. They've chased after their own things. They've said, God, it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your way, it's about my way. In fact, I think you're withholding something good for me, and so you're not going to be my God anymore. I'm going to raise up another God. I'm going to worship this God, and as a result of worshiping that God, I can serve myself. I can get what I want. I can get what I need. I don't need you anymore, God. You see, sin always fails to deliver. It never gives you what you think you're going to get. The cost is always too high. It always costs you more than you think you're going to pay, and it always takes away from you what you hope to get. Not only can sin not deliver what what you want from it, but in fact it steals from you the very thing that you're hoping to get. It's deceptive. There's a lie. Don't be deceived. God Is good. And so the people here in this oppression, in this enslavement, are running for their lives. And as a result of having to run for their lives, they finally cry out to God. Look at me, look with me, if you will, in chapter 6 of of Judges, uh, verse 6. It says this So Israel was greatly impoverished. This is the result of their sin. They were greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord set, sent a prophet to them. They finally cry out for deliverance. But this is after seven long years of oppression. Why in the world would you wait in these situation, this kind of a circumstance, for seven long years? Why do we hold on to our sin for so long? Why do we think that it's good for so long? Why does it take so much for us to be willing to let go of those things that God clearly says in his word, this is bad, don't do it. Don't do these things. It will cost you everything. And yet we somehow rationalize and think for ourselves that it's not going to be that bad for me. It's not going to work out like that for me. Don't sit in your sin. Don't sit in your sin. God gave them a, a profit instead of deliverance. Did you see that there? In verse, in verse 7, it says, It came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. So before, they, they, in, in their history, for three other times, there, there was, they cried out to God, and there was a, a deliverer, a judge that came. And so the people, again, here, they finally come to themselves. They finally realize this sin thing is not working out. It's actually bad. It's actually hurting us. The thing that we hoped that we were going to get has been taken from us, and now we're enslaved, and now, God, we need you so bad. God, please, would you rescue us? And they cry out to God. And instead of a deliverer, God gives them a prophet. And the prophet's message to them, as every prophet in the scripture is, repent. Stop sinning. If you would stop doing the wrong thing, then you would be in the blessing of God. As any good parent knows, I want to bless my kids. I want to give to them everything that I can. I want them to have great days. I want them to enjoy life. And I want to give them everything. But when those little filthy sin bags, those little heathens, <laughs> do the wrong thing, it's my duty to discipline them. Because I love them, I have to discipline them. What am I going to do? Let them run amok and do whatever they want to do and just chase after the wrong things and chase after those life-threatening things, those things that will cost them everything? No. If I'm a good dad, if I'm, if I'm faithful to them, if I love them, then I will discipline them. I will, I will bring them away from those things. I will guard them. And I will tell them, No because I love them. Not give them open freedom to do whatever they want make their own decisions. That's stupid. But somehow we think that they become teenagers and now they can make their own decisions about the, everything that's going to affect the rest of their lives. Oh, I don't want to restrict them by making them go to church. That's stupid. That's not wise. I don't want to, I don't want to tell them that they should believe in God because I, don't want th- I want them to figure it out on their own. No, that's stupid. That's not wise. Don't do that. It's your job, it's your duty to pursue the Lord and to cause your children to do the same, to bring discipline into their lives, to to instruct them, to to give them the structure that they need. You see, God brings for them a prophet. A prophet's message is repentance. Because your greatest need is not to be rescued from your circumstance, it's to repent from your sin. That's your greatest need. It's not to be rescued from your circumstance. Sure, God would rescue them from their circumstance, but that was not their greatest need. Their greatest need was to be rescued from their sin. Repentance is first. Deliverance comes later. Don't allow the stubbornness of pride to keep you from repentance because the right time to repent is right now. This is the time. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to go through the motions of feeling sorry about things. You don't have to to rationalize something or feel really, really, really bad. If you notice that something is sin in your life, repent today, now, at this moment. Not later. As soon as the Spirit of God quickens to your heart and to your mind that you're in sin, that's the moment to to repent. Not later. Don't wait. Repent of it then. And so God brings to them this, this prophet. And so the prophet comes... And God begins to raise up this deliverer in, in Gideon. And so we see we're going to break down Gideon's life a little bit and, and look at some different things that God did with Gideon and, and look into to him uh, today for the, for the rest of our time together. And, and, and so I want to try to pull out for you in these sections of Scripture. We're not going to have the time to read through all of it. I'm just going to kind of highlight some of these things in Gideon's life, Uh, but I hope to to show you as we go through this what these sections of Scripture are talking about in terms of Gideon and his life. And so in Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, we see that Gideon is called. Read with me, if you will, 11 and 12 of Judges chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And so God shows up, appears to Gideon, and calls him into service. God intervenes in the situation when the people turn to him. The people cry out to God, he sends a prophet, and then he raises up a deliverer. He inserts himself into the situation. The, this, this we see here, uh, it says the angel of the Lord in, in verse 11. This is a pre-incarnate representation or manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. That's a, t- a totally different study, a complete study in and of itself. But suffice it to say that we would say that this is Jesus revealing himself in the Old Testament... Uh, and, and speaking to his, his people. Commonly, this is referred to as a, a Christophany. And as Gideon here is, is going through the motions of doing something that's quite peculiar, a little odd, God shows up. God shows up. Notice what it says there in verse 11. It says that, that uh, Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press. Okay, a wine press is a place where you press wine, right? It's really descriptive. Um, basically it's a pit dug into the ground that you go into and you put the grapes in and you stamp them out and you crush them. And that's how you begin producing wine. So this is, this is what this is used for. It's a wine press designed to make wine. And he's in there with wheat, threshing the wheat, uh, in order to hide it from the Midianites. Uh, rightly so, they're, they're marauding through, they're, uh, they're slaughtering people, taking everything they can, and so Gideon's freaked out, he's afraid, he's in the wine press threshing wheat. Now this is, this is a crazy thing that he's doing here, it doesn't make any sense that he would do this, because you thresh wheat in open spaces. You thresh wheat on hilltops, because the wheat is connected to the chaff, or the part that you can't eat, and the best way to get rid of it is to use wind, because as you throw it up into the air, the wind will blow through, the chaff will leave, and the wheat will fall back down. But Gideon is trying to, t- trying to use something for, for a purpose in which it's not intended. He's taking this wine press, and he's trying to thresh wheat in there. And God shows up. And, and God doesn't show up engaging Gideon because Gideon has amazing, covert farming skills. Right? Like, that's, that's not what's going on. He's, he's afraid. He's freaked out of his mind. And God shows up and says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. Really? Pretty impressive, if you ask me. I mean, if he can figure out how to thresh weed in there, he's got to have some sort of skill, I guess. But it's not valiant; it's not valor that is that is his greatest thing. Clearly, Gideon is hiding. We're even told in verse eleven he's hiding it from the Midianites. He's not a warrior; he's just some guy. And God shows up. God calls Gideon this this mighty man of valor. Uh, Not because that's who he was, but Gideon, uh, as we read through and what you'll see, the things that best describe Gideon are are cowardice, weakness, doubt. He's unstable. He's wavering. um, He's uncertain. He's anything but a mighty man of valor. God shows up on the situation. He looks into Gideon's life and he sees who Gideon could be. He sees who Gideon would be. Not the potential within Gideon, but the potential that God has to take this cowardly man and turn him into a mighty man of valor. We're told in in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a bit of a commentary on this section of Scripture. And in the middle of of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, I believe it's in verse 34, we're told that uh, it says that they were out of weakness, they were made strong out of weakness, were made strong. Gideon did not have strength within himself. He wasn't a strong man. He wasn't this mighty man of valor by nature. He was, by nature, a coward. Fearful. Hiding. And God changed everything. God took this cowardly man and turned him into a mighty man of valor. Left to himself, Gideon would remain a doubting coward. But God's call to Gideon was not only a call to deliver the people, but a call of transformation in him. And so too it is with you, and with me. That when God calls us, the call is not to make us a better version of ourselves. No, you need to die. You need to, to cease, in order for Christ to live in you. That's the hope. That's what we cling to: the transformation. And so God calls Gideon in this season and in this time. And verse: uh, what we see happening is that from here, Gideon responds. To, to God in doubt and basically blasphemy. He says, uh, our fathers told us about uh, all of these things that God did when he delivered us from Egypt and all those things. He's actually referring to the message that's a, that the prophet had. The prophet reminded them of God's deliverance from Egypt. And Gideon refers to that and basically says, yeah, I know that God did that then, but what about now? God's abandoned us. God's forsaken us. God, is, God is, he, He's left us he's delivered us into the hand of the midianites and he's forsaken us somehow charging the evil against god never once realizing that gideon it's because of your sin it's because of the sin of the people that you find yourself here not because god is bad but because the people are sinful there's nothing wrong with god the problem is that the people have abandoned him and so god promises his presence to gideon he says gideon in the midst of this i i don't even want to i don't want want to even touch on your blasphemy. I want you to trust in me. Look with me at verse 16, what he says to him. God, speaking to Gideon, says, it says, and the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God promises his presence as the ability to produce the victory. It's God's presence that produces the the victory. You see, Gideon questions and doubts God's character, not God's ability. He questions God's character. God, you've forsaken us. You've left us. You've abandoned us. And his foolish blasphemy is not an excuse for us to do the same. It's not an excuse for us to be able to say, look, Gideon blasphemed against God. Gideon questioned God's character and God still used him. I can do the same, right? No. That is not what that's written there for. It's written there for us to see how foolish he was to not trust God. How foolish he was to bring a charge and an accusation against God. Not for us to be able to have license to do the same. It's displayed so we can see the folly of his response. But he says to him, graciously, I'll be with you in verse 16. God being with you is the crux of all Christian service. Of all Christian service. You can serve or you can serve as called and equipped and gifted by God. And there are vastly different things. Just serving for the sake of serving is where you produce burnout. It's where you produce frustration. It's where you produce anxiety, fear, uh, and and your own kingdom is built. And yet when you serve at the calling and beckoning and direction of God, it's where life is found. It's where freedom is found. It's where power comes from. And and so Gideon here is being called by God and God says, I will be with you. You see, Gideon was not posing a plan of deliverance to God. Instead, he was called to act in faith upon God's plan, and upon God's ability. So not only is, is Gideon given this, this calling, but God now begins to grow Gideon in verses 17 through 40 of chapter 6. We see in, in verses 17 and 18 that it says this, Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. In verse 18, Do not depart from here, I will pray, uh, I pray until I bring until uh, I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. Now that his calling is established, give, Gideon must be developed. God cannot can take this man and just shoot him right into the battle. He's got to develop the guy. He's got to show him, I'm trustworthy. I am your God. I, you can hope in me. You can trust in me. And so Gideon rightly seeks to assure that his faith is rightly placed in God. He he seeks to assure that this isn't just some guy that shows up but that this is actually God. In the Old Testament when we see the the angel of the Lord appear, he always appears as a man. When 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 the 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 writer of the God, of the uh, of scripture shows us from his perspective that this is the angel of the Lord, but from the perspective of the man seeing it, it looked like another guy. It looked like some man. We when you read about it in Abraham, before the Lord and two of his angels go down to to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that he saw three men. When Jacob wrestled the angel, he he wrestled a man. When Joshua goes out to defeat Jericho, he's out walking by himself and he sees a man with a sword drawn. It looks like a man. It looks like just just somebody else. Maybe a peculiar man. Maybe a man that doesn't say the same thing that everyone else does, but, but it looks like a man. And it's only at the revelation of himself that God then shows that this is, this is in fact God. And now Gideon has this response. And Gideon asks this man to prove his authority, to prove his deity. And so he goes and, and he says, let me prepare an offering for you. So he goes and he takes, he takes a, a goat, he prepares the meat, he prepares some bread, and he gets some broth. And he brings it all to the, the angel of the Lord, to this man. And, and as he shows up, God says to him, put, put the meat and the bread on the rock pour out the broth next to it. And as he does this, God takes the staff that's in his hand, touches the meat and the bread, immediately fire rises out of the rock, consumes the bread, consumes the meat, and he's gone. And Gideon's response is, oh no, I've been with God. And he remembers back to when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, no man can live in my presence. No flesh can see me. No one can see me and live. And he thinks, I'm going to die. And God speaks to him and comforts him and says, you're not going to die, Gideon. I want you to just follow me. Gideon clearly believed that he had been with God and not merely a man. In 1 John 4, verse 1, we're told to do this very thing. This very thing that Gideon does. In 1 John 4, verse 1, it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's important for us not to just accept everybody who comes along and says, I'm of God and I'm, I'm a messenger of God and I have this message that you should follow and I should, you should just follow after whatever I say. It's important for us to test and make sure and make certain that the people who we, are, um, who we are putting our faith in actually are from God and that our faith isn't in them, it's in the God who gives them the calling, the God who gives them the power, the God who gives them the direction. And so Gideon does this very thing. So that, that night, God shows up to Gideon And not only does God call Gideon, but now uh, God is going to uh, grow him. And in growing him, he gives him a simple task. The first task that God gives to him is found in verse 25 of chapter 6. It says this, Now it came to pass in the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Verse 27, So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. God commands Gideon with this first step of obedience. This first step of obedience. Gideon, I'm going to take you and I'm going to have you destroy the entire nation of Midian. You're going to wipe out their troops that are so great that you can't even number them. You're going to do it. You're going to take them out. But Gideon, first, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to your father's house and deal with the idol worship there. I need you to go there. You see, we must deal with sin properly in order to be able to move forward. In order to achieve the things that God has for us in our lives, we cannot remain in our sin. We cannot remain as we are. We have to change. We have to transform. We have to get closer to Jesus. I can't look back 10 years in my Christianity and say, man, I was changing so much back then. God was doing so much in my life, and he was transforming me and causing me to be different back then. But, you know, that was then. Now I'm pretty much perfect, and I've attained this holiness, and you should be like me. That's crazy. We should be transformed. We should be growing in the image of Jesus from faith to faith, that that God's grace overcomes our lives even more so. John the Baptist said it like this, I must decrease that he might increase. That has to be the perpetual state of the Christian life. And so the way that we can do this, the way what we see Gideon do here is he recognizes the idol as a sin. Number one, he recognizes the idol as a sin. He's not making excuses for it. He's not saying that it's okay. He's not saying everyone else is doing it. He's not saying this is culturally relevant for our day. He's saying, God, you say this is sin. I agree with you. I'm recognizing it as sin. I'm willing to recognize it as sin. The second thing that he does is he repents of his sin. Not only does he recognize it as sin, you can recognize things as sin and still do it. But he repents. He chooses to turn away from it. Repentance is to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Repentance is not to turn from one sin to another. It's not to turn from one sin to self-help. It's not to turn from, from one sin to another person. You cannot turn from, from pornography to your wife to save you. She's not your Savior. Jesus is. You can't turn from, from drunkenness to marijuana. That's not your savior. Jesus is. You can't turn from one sin to another. You can't turn from people, uh, from sin to people. You have to go to Jesus. That's repentance. Anything else is less than repentance. Anything else is trading one sin for another. And it will yield no freedom for you. It will only get you deeper into bondage. And so he recognizes the idol as a sin. He repents of his sin. Thirdly, he removes the sin. You don't repent of sin and leave it there so you can get to it later, right? You destroy it. The only right way to deal with an idol is to destroy it. He removes the idol. God says, cut it down, burn it up. It should no longer exist. It's not even accessible to you any longer. He recognizes his sin. He repents of his sin. He removes his sin. And fourthly, he replaces the sinful idolatry with worship to God. He offers a sacrifice to God there. This is how you deal properly with sin. This is how we become free from our idols, become free from the sin that so easily entangles us and ensnares us. If he didn't do this, he couldn't lead the people. This is the first step for Gideon. If he failed at this, everything else beyond this was not even possible. As the leader, he had to go first. Me first, others after me. Man, I want to challenge you with this. Are you repenting of your sin? Do you do it in front of your wife? Do you do it in front of your kids? Do you show them what it's like to repent? Do you, do you display for them? When sin rises up in my life, this is how we deal with it. Not pridefully saying I have no sin, not, not pretending as though they know that, I'm, uh, that I have sin and I can just pretend as though I got everything under control. But to say this is what we will do. I'm going to call this what it is. It's sin. No excuses. We're going to destroy it. And we're going to replace it with worship to God. If you, have, if, you have, if you want a hope for your family, if you want a hope for your wife and your kids, do the same. Show them what it looks like. Show the other Christians around you what it looks like. Show your friends what this looks like to be a man of repentance. If you want to lead, this is what it takes. Notice it says there that Gideon was afraid. He was too afraid to do it by day, so he did it by night but he was obedient. Even though he was afraid, he was obedient. Sometimes you just got to do it scared. It's just the way it is. It's not the the lack of fear that causes him to be a man of valor. It's that he does it even though he's afraid. When fear keeps you from obedience, it's sin. James 4.17 clearly states that if you know to do good and you choose not to do it, it's sin. There are sins of commission that you do, that you commit sins, and there are sins of omission, that you don't do things that are good, and that's sin as well. We have to be a people who are willing to follow the Lord no matter what the cost. When fear keeps you from obedience, it's sin. And so here we see in 36 through 40 that Gideon then puts out a fleece to the Lord. He, he, uh, the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon, and he sounds forth the trumpet. He sounds forth the call, and he calls for himself, the nation of Israel, to gather so that he can have an army to go against Midian. And the people show up. I'm sure it's blowing his mind. Just, just the day before, he was the dude sitting in the wine press trying to thresh wheat, hiding from everybody. And now he's blowing trumpets and people are coming around him and and rallying around him. Now it's time to go and to fight. And he does so. But then Gideon does something interesting. He lays out these fleeces. This is one of the most commonly known things in the story of Gideon is the fleece. So he takes a fleece, puts it on the ground. He says, God, if you're going to do what you said you were going to do, then make the fleece wet, the ground dry. So he wakes up the next morning and it happened. So he takes the fleece, brings it out in a bowl, and it's a whole bowl full of water that's in the fleece. He goes, okay, God. Please don't be mad at me. Let's reverse it. Just to make sure. Ground wet, fleece dry. Wakes up in the morning, same thing. Right? It happens. This is what he does. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of Christians, they take this teaching, they take this thing that Gideon does, and they, they say, oh, this is how you discern the will of God. And I, I want to submit to you that this is not something that you should do. This, is, this isn't something that, that Scripture is laying out for us so that we can copy what Gideon is doing. This is This is... Not shown for us as some sort of um, noble attempt by Gideon to ascertain the will of God through miraculous means. This is this is cowardice. This is doubt. This is fear. God has already clearly spoken to him. God has already miraculously revealed Himself. Remember the fire that burned up the meat and everything. God disappeared. He knew he was in God's presence. He knew God spoke to him. He had, he had been faithful to destroy the altar. And and everything went well. The people responded well. At first they wanted to kill him, but his dad said, no, no, don't kill him. And then the Spirit of God comes upon him, he blows the trumpet, the army gathers, and now Gideon wants to lay out a fleece. This is is not nobility. This is cowardice. This is not something for us to to emulate. This is something for us to look at and say, I need to be a, a person of faith. I can see here that God was doing this. And so when I look at my life and I look at the things that God is leading me in, I can trust him. I can hope in him. God has already spoken. He's already proven himself. Not to mention that when you look in the book of of Acts, chapter one, it's the last time we ever see the people of God do something like this. It's when Peter uh, and and the, the other 11 want to replace the 12th apostle. And so they cast lots to try to figure out what God wants to do. And they get this dude named Matthias who you never hear from again. He never does anything. Noteworthy in Scripture, and they pick him. He's the 12th apostle. Good choice. Jesus picks Paul. They didn't wait for God. They, they took matters into their own hands. It wasn't a good thing that they were doing by casting lots and laying out fleeces. This is not something for us to practice as Christians. It's something for us to look at and say, God was with him. I can trust God as well. Not only has Gideon grown, but we see in chapter 7, Uh, that Gideon is equipped. Let's read uh, verses 1 and 2 of, of Judges 7. Chapter 1 and 2 says this, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me, saying, my, my own hand has saved me. Saying, My own hand has saved me. And so God is concerned that the people will claim their own ability for this victory. Now that God has, has raised up Gideon, God has heard the cry of the people, He is starting to grow Gideon's faith and show him, Gideon, I'm with you. I'm with you, bro. Don't, don't stress. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll even condescend to your, your silly request by making the fleece wet and the ground dry. And I'll flip it and reverse it. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll help you along the way. God knows who we are. He knows what we need. He knows our weaknesses. And he's not looking to condemn you, but he's looking to give you life. And as he goes through, he sees that the army gathers together. And God looks at the army and says, it's too big. There's too many people. You're going to claim your own ability that you were able to save yourself. Now, we see in chapter 8, verse 10, that the Midianite army is about 135,000, right? This is the army they're going against. 135,000 is how many people they're going against. And here we see that Israel's army, in verse 3, is right around 32,000, right? Those are already pretty crazy odds. That's four to one. Four Midianites for every one is Israel. Israeli. That's not good odds. If I'm a betting man, I'm not going with Israel, right? Like, I, I can't take on four guys by myself. I don't know if you, maybe you're a stud. and You can, but I can't. Um, maybe one-on-one I got a shot, but four is, is pretty crazy. And God looks at them and says, you know what? It's, it, it's too crazy. Uh, you guys are th- going to think that you had something to do with this. And so he says, "And He says, I want you to reduce the army. But notice what he says there in verse 2. He says, lest Israel claim the glory for itself against me. God takes this very personally. He looks at this and he says, your claiming of the glory is not just the claiming of the glory, but you're doing it against me. You're thinking that you have something to do with this and you have nothing to do with it. You people are all hiding in the hills. I'm the one who's going to bring you your glory. I'm the one who's going to bring you your freedom. It's not yours, it's mine. Your own hand will not save you. And he wants to drive this home and make the emphasis clear and sure. And so we read in verse 3 that it says, God continuing speaking to to Gideon, he says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of all the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So just like that, he loses two-thirds of his army great day for Gideon, right? I'm sure he was really encouraged. Um, and, and his, his, what he said was, Hey, if you guys are afraid, go ahead and go home. He was maybe, maybe a couple hundred guys will leave, you know, and then 22,000 get up and go. This is, uh, that's, that gotta be mind blowing to even see that. And so he looks at that. I, I wonder like, why do they show up in the first place? And I think about guys and I think probably peer pressure. You know, uh, there was a time here when we were, uh, we were breaking down and uh, we used to use buckets to hold up the curtains. And um, one day I, I actually, I, I picked up four buckets, right? And I did so because we were kind of light handed. And I knew that if I picked up four buckets, every other guy would pick up four buckets and it totally worked. I grabbed four because usually we grab two. So I, grab, I took two, I put them next to each other. I took two, put them next to each other and I grab them and I pick them up. And I, I see Pastor Kyle walking by me and he looks at me and he goes, and he goes over and grabs four buckets and picks them up real quick. It's because guys compete. If you can do it, I can do it. If you're going to show up, I'm going to show up. And you imagine brothers, they're even worse at this. I wouldn't know. I have all daughters. Uh, and I grew up with a, a sister. So, but I hear that guys are competitive. <laughs> so there's brothers growing up in these houses. I'm going to the battle. Well, if you're going, I'm, I'm going too. And they show up and they get there. And getting goes, hey, if you guys are afraid, then take off. They go, see ya. And they're out. 22,000 abandon him. He's only left with 10,000. So God looks at these 10,000. Now the odds are 13 and a half Midianites to every one Israeli. I I cannot take on 13 guys. Um, Maybe some crazy Jackie Chan movie it works, but uh, this this is nuts. And so verses four through seven we read, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog, laps that's kind of crazy, you shall set, I've never done that before, lapped water with my tongue. I don't know if you have, Any, but apparently some of them are going to do it. So um, whoever drinks water like a dog, set them apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink and set them apart by themselves. So divide everybody up. And, verse 6, the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who, who have lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go their way, uh, every man to his place. And so God here sends away 9,700 and keeps 300, bringing the, the odds, bringing the, uh, the, the ratio to 450 Midianites to one Israeli. God is driving home a point of emphasis. You have no hope without me. Don't think that you can do this on your own. Don't think you can free yourself from your sin. Don't think that your idolatry is going to be freed by your doing. You have to trust me. I'm your only hope. There's no way out of this. They will continue to dominate you. They will continue to destroy you. They will continue to, dis- to, to enslave you. They will continue to take from you unless you trust in me, unless you hope in me. Everything else is out the window. I'm your only hope. The odds of sheer impossibility are God's choice environment. It's now in this impossible situation that God begins to act because now it's it's impossible for them to improperly apply the credit they they have to know that God was with them they have to know that it was the Lord and so God emphasizes That it's his presence that produces the the victory. It's not their cunning. It's not their ingenuity. It's not their craftiness. It's not their brute strength or their sheer numbers. They were in trouble as a result of their own doing. It was their own sin that brought them there. It was their own idolatry that brought them there. And they weren't going to get out by their own doing either. It was their disobedience that brought them into bondage. And it was only obedience that would produce the victory and the freedom. It was only if they trusted God. It was only if they believed that he could do it. And so my question to you this morning is, what is your impossible situation? What are you facing today that's impossible? There's no way out. The odds are against me. It's 450 to one. I got no chance. No matter what I do, it always ends up wrong. No matter how hard I try, it always comes back to bite me. Everything I do just folds on itself. I'm I'm in this impossible situation. Could it very well be that God has you there for the specific purpose of showing you that it's him? He can deliver you. He can do what you can't. He can produce the victory. Are you willing to trust him? What's your impossible situation? Are you willing to hope in Him and trust in Him? Obedience alone will bring you the freedom that you need. And so Gideon, we see in chapter 7, all the way, uh, verse 9, all the way through 8.21, that he's victorious. Seven nine says this, It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down... To the camp with uh, Pura, go down with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear uh, what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then they went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And so God now speaks to Gideon this third miraculous time, third miraculous interaction interaction with Gideon. And God has has told Gideon what to do step by step all the way through. Gideon's Gideon's faith was being grown through this, but it was in his obediently following God's direction, not his own. It wasn't that he could make up what he thought he should do and just muster up enough strength and just pursue it. It's that he knew that if I trust God, if I take this next step in faith, God has spoken, I can trust in Him, I can believe in Him, I can hope in Him, then the victory will come. It, it reminds me of, uh, of a time when I was, co- actually, when I was called into ministry. The, the, the day I remember it vividly. It was the same day that I got saved. I was in a, I was in an arena with a bunch of other teenagers. The guy was preaching. It was like I was the only one in the room. And I stood up and I dedicated my heart to Jesus. And, and it was, it was this, this moment where God was speaking to me. God's only spoken to me like this three times in my life. Was, um, that was one of them on that day. And I went forward. And as I went forward, I knelt down to pray and, and receive the Lord. And on my back, someone, someone touched me. I knew they were praying for me as soon as they touched me. And as soon as as soon as his hand touched my back, I knew it was the youth pastor that I'd come with. I don't even remember his name to this day. He touched my back. And as he touched my back, the Lord spoke to me. What he's doing for you, you do for other people. And that was it. That was when I was 17 years old. And from that day, I mean, I've had my ups and downs. I've, I've had my struggles. But I've been pursuing the Lord, trying by faith to keep going. And I remember when I, uh, when I graduated from high school, I, I uh, had this call on my life. I have to be this pastor. And so I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try it. And uh, so I I decide, hey, I should take a public speaking class. That'll be great. You know, you have to talk, right, as a pastor. So I should probably know how to do it. So I go to college, I go to community college, and I take this public speaking class, the worst train wreck I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I was the kid in high school that hid from everybody. I was Gideon. I hid. I went under the radar. I didn't want anyone to know me. I didn't want anyone to know who I was. Talking in front of people, never. Not going to happen. But God transformed me. I thought that I could make it happen through my own ability. I thought that I have, to, I have to take a class. I have to learn some stuff. I have to go through the, this is what you do, right? You learn how to publicly speak. And they tell you how to look at everybody and make sure that you move your hands and make sure that you use inflection. All, they tell you those things, right? And I'm trying to do it. And there's these hot chicks in the class and I really like them. And I want them to notice me and think I'm really good at speaking. And so it's just horrible. Worst ever. So I am like God. You're wrong. I don't know what you thought you picked, but I'm the worst guy for this job. I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking, but you chose foolishly, God. You 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 don't know me apparently, um, but God transformed those things in my life. He He took over, and it was. It's not because I have some sort of ability. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Him. The very fact that I'm standing in front of you right now is a testament to His miraculous ability. I didn't want to do this. I ran away from it, and he made me. But here I am. So I hope you're not too burdened by that. (laughs) Gideon didn't blindly jump into action on his own time or in his own way to make God's call happen. He waited for God's direction to take the next step. And Gideon is fearful, and so he takes Purah into the camp with him, and God appears to, to, to him again there, uh, you know, in that moment, he miraculously reveals through the dream that the, the Midianites have. This one guy has a dream, and the dream is that a piece of bread tumbled into the camp and knocked over a tent. Kind of a weird dream. And, and he's telling it to his friend, and his friend goes, oh, It's Gideon. God's with him, and he's going to kill us all. And Gideon hears it, and he's like, yeah, it's God. So he goes back, and he, tells, he, he rallies the troops. He gets his 300 guys. He's like, let's go, let's do this. And so we read in verse 8, 15, it says, So it was that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, right, 100 apiece. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand and empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. These are their implementations of war. Kind of weird, but there you go. Uh, 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch when I come to the edge of the camp and do as I do. When I blow the trumpet uh, and I I and all who are with me, then you also shall blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so this is his battle plan. He takes these guys, gives them trumpets pitchers and torches and he says go stand on the hill you guys over there you guys over there we're gonna stand here and then when you hear us when you hear us blow our trumpets you guys do the same thing so they all get together they go you know whatever and then they smash their pots and there's a torch and they go the sword of the lord and Gideon," and then all of the midianite camp start killing they start hacking each other just killing each other they didn't even have to fight They just showed up and yelled some stuff. And all of a sudden, they're killing each other. I mean, can you imagine that? A massive army just murdering each other in front of you. And you're like, whoa. Man, God is crazy, right? So God does this for them. God graciously gives Gideon another miraculous sign. And and by faith, his fear is finally overcome. And so Gideon goes down with his people. And he didn't even need to fight. And the Lord won the battle that day. God caused Midian to be so confused that they killed one another. And here's, here's the thing that I want to pull out for you in this. That, that you have two great enemies in your life. And that is sin and death. Two enemies who you cannot defeat. You are powerless against that are both defeated by Jesus. His death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection defeats sin and death. And it's only in your faith in Him. It's only in your hope in Him. It's only in Jesus alone, who has defeated sin and death, that you have hope. Jesus is your great victor. You have to trust in Him. The the victory we see in chapter 8, verse 12, is is thorough. It's complete. He destroys them all. And along the way, as he's pursuing them, he finds these these two Midianite um, princes named Ziba and Zalmunna, and he's chasing them down. And as he's going along, he meets these, he, he, uh, he's chasing them down and he comes across a couple of cities. And the one city he shows up and he says, hey, my guys are hungry. They're thirsty. Give them something to eat and something to drink. And they go, mm, no, I don't think so. You don't have the guys, you don't have the Ziba and Zalmunna in your hand. I'm not risking this. I'm not risking them coming back and, and taking us out. So you guys are on your own. And so Gideon says, all right, when we come back, we're going to beat you up with thorns. We're going to tear your flesh with thorns. Okay, so he goes on to the next city, and he says the same thing. And they go, no, nope. they, they have the same response. You don't have those guys in your hand. We're not going with you. And so he says, when we come back, we're going to tear down your tower in your city. And so they go on. They catch these two guys. They, they rout the entire army. The, the, the victory is complete, and they come back. And he, he, in the one city, he tears down the, the tower, kills all the men. The next city, he comes back, and he thrashes them with, with the thorns. What we see here is that pride starts to grip Gideon in his heart that Gideon starts now to be judgmental and harsh with the very thing that he struggled with. These two cities, they, they, they had a hard time with faith. They had a hard time believing that God would actually, was actually delivering the people. It's the very thing that Gideon struggled with the whole time. It was just the night before that he went into the camp fearful and God had to give him this miraculous dream through the other guys. And now he's dealing harshly with the others. Your sin always looks worse on other people. It's always easier to spot on others. It's always easier for us to see what he's doing. And so here we see that Gideon is acting foolish. In verses 22 through 32, what happens to Gideon? He started in humility, but he allowed pride and compromise to take him in the end. Starting well is easy, it's finishing well that's difficult. 22 and 23 says this. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson, also for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. As a result of their victory, the people wrongly attribute their success and their newfound freedom to Gideon. And so they say, Gideon, you should be our king and we'll set up a dynasty. Your kids and your grandkids will reign and rule over us. And so Gideon rightly and honorably points them back to god he says i'm not going to be your your ruler god is your king he knew that he didn't save them but that god did while god while gideon did refuse the kingship he did though seek out the priesthood notice what it says in verse 24 and 27 verse 24 says then gideon said to them i would like to make a request from you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And verse 27 says, Then Gideon made it, made all that gold, into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. While Gideon refused the kingship, he desired the priesthood. You see, Gideon used his influence for his own gain. He asked the people, ah, I'm not going to be your king, but hey, if I could ask anything from you, maybe you could just, just throw in your earrings. I mean, you guys got a lot of plunder. Just throw in your earrings. So they lay out a, a, a piece of, of cloth there, and all Israel comes by and throws it in their earrings. Well, they, they we're told there in, uh, in verse 26 that the weight of the gold was 107, I'm sorry, 1,700 shekels, which is about 45 pounds of gold, which is about uh, 720 ounces of gold. Uh, gold today, right now, is about... $1,250 per ounce for every one ounce. So this is $900,000 of gold that he takes. Just a couple of earrings, right? Um, just go ahead and throw your earrings. So he takes this 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 $900,000 in gold, and he makes an ephod out of it. Exodus 28 actually tells us about this idea of an ephod. It's a high priestly garment uh, with very specific design, very specific uh, um, uh, materials are used in order to build it, and it was worn by the high priest alone to go in before the Lord and make sacrifices and offerings before the Lord. And so as he does this, um, Gideon raises up this ephod. He duplicates the ephod, but his is of pure gold. So as to say, I may not be your king, but I'm going to be remembered. I will be remembered. All Israel there, we're told in verse 27, played the harlot with it. This idea of playing the harlot is used in Scripture of God's people abandoning him and going after other gods. You see, Gideon here traded one idol for another and led the people back into the slavery of idolatry. He didn't finish well. He started well. He started in humility, but he ended in pride, thinking that it had something to do with him. Wanting the people to remember him. Wanting the people to realize that he was a part of all this. He wasn't content just with the people honoring and worshiping God. He wanted them to remember him. We need to remember who God is. God doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your ability. The greatest ability you can offer to God is your availability. Because he called you, he will sustain you, and he will bring it to pass. Not only remembering who God is, but remember who you are without God. Take care not to allow the victory he provides to incite your flesh into thinking it has anything to do with you. Remember what Jesus said in John fifteen five: Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Out of weakness, Gideon was made strong. And out of your weakness, God can make you strong. You have to trust it to him. And act in faith as to what he calls you to do.